The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range. Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's Thursday and this is George Hook with The Right Hook on News Talk. Here's a digest of some of the items we had on the programme today. A week gone from polling day in the United Kingdom on Brexit, the reverberations continue and who knows what's going to happen next. But the position of Scotland um, is... uh, unusual. And I'm delighted to welcome to the programme the former First Minister of Scotland. He's now the Scottish National Party's MP for Gordon, Alex Salmond. Alex, welcome to the programme. Oh, great to be back, George. Well, first of all, our man, Enda Kenny, the Taoiseach, is getting a rollicking for interfering because apparently he's playing on your team and he shouldn't be. Aye, but not from the Irish people, uh, George. <laughs> I think that was from David Coburn. <laughs> I wouldn't worry. I wouldn't worry too much about him. We we call him Mister One and a Half Percent in Scotland because right. that's the percentage of the vote that you kept got in last month's elections. So I wouldn't worry about David Coburn. For one thing, he's never in Scotland. He's All right, but uh, but Alex, you were happy for the Taoiseach to enter the debate then. Uh, absolutely, widely appreciated in Scotland that our friends in Ireland should come to, to Scotland's aid. We knew we were going to get opposition from the, the boy Rajoy in, in Spain. But then, of course, he's a man who hasn't been able to win two elections running in the last few months, so he might not be around for, for much longer. So we're hoping that uh, not just in Ireland, but our friends across Europe will recognise the enthusiasm that the vast majority of people in Scotland have for Europe. Okay. Just, as we, just as we've stood with Europe, we believe that Europe will stand with us. All right, but that, that may well be the case, and I don't think there's any doubt about it. However, as we stand, Scotland is part of the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom is a member of the EU, not Scotland. Um, and you are... you. Uh, unilaterally cannot actually call a referendum. Isn't that so? I will get the referendum all right. I mean, uh, you know, the, the Tories always say we won't get a referendum, but last time that happened, that's what Cameron said to me, and we ended up getting the referendum as soon as we said boo to him. So, you know, as soon as the Scottish Parliament decides to back a referendum, then there shall be a referendum. The issue of how we get into Europe on our own behalf, of course, is more complex. Yes. Uh, there are some suggestions that uh, you could do it uh, as Greenland and, uh, Greenland and the Faroes did with uh, Denmark, but in reverse. In other words, under Article 48, uh, the Kingdom of Denmark uh, includes the Faroe Islands and Greenland, but Greenland and the Faroes are out of the European Union and Denmark is in. So there's some suggestion you might be able to do that. But uh, Nicola Studs is exploring every avenue. But uh, a lot of people think at the end of the day, uh, the only way you can secure Scotland's position in Europe is as an independent country. And of course, last time I was on your show, George, uh, uh, we were saying that we thought independence would be coming around sooner than many people thought. (laughs) Well, I see see it's odds on in Monium Hills, the bookies today. (laughs) So (laughs) you've you've got a touch of the... The crystal balls there in your show, George. All right, but having said that, Alex Salmond, and you're a former First Minister of Scotland, 
if a referendum on independence um, were to be put in the the you know in the the soon future it would seem following the furore over Brexit and the way Scotland voted to remain within Europe and the clear appetite of Scots to be in Europe an independent an in, a referendum on independence would probably carry well there's certainly been three polls this week uh, free opinion polls, all of which have shown majorities for independence. Uh, but, of course, opinion polls are having a bad time these days. So I think I prefer to look at the movement of opinion formers rather than opinion polls. And what has been significant over the last week has been the number of people who were previously no men and women in the 2014 referendum and said, look, this changes everything. Now we're moving to yes. Among them, for example... One of my predecessors as First Minister of Scotland, a Labour First Minister, Henry McLeish, who's moved to the independence camp. So I think that's a very significant straw in the wind. All right. Now, there is Europe for Scotland, and one can see, you know, committed Europeans like the Irish are, by and large, can see the advantages to Scotland economically. But the same argument still applies, does it not, Alex Hammond, that... If Scotland becomes an independent nation, effectively leaves the United Kingdom, it has major implications for the part for the rest of the United Kingdom that's left. Well, that's correct, George. But and of course, there's a whole question of whether you can have a soft border. Uh, but then that's the same issue which is going to be the case between Northern Ireland and the correct. Irish Republic. Yes. Uh, so we we will face exactly that issue in terms of uh, Scotland's independent within uh, Europe and the rest of the UK stays out, as it seems inevitably that it will, will face this implication of the of the border situation. However, I- I'm pretty certain that as long as you stay outside the Schengen Agreement, it's certainly going to be possible to have a, a soft border and the cops are going to be going undergoing in that in the next few weeks. And if you solve it, of course, for Northern Ireland and Ireland, then you solve it for Scotland and England. Yeah, but I mean, I just thinking, um, I was a truck driver in my youth, Alex, you know, and uh, Shap Fell, the only thing that stopped you getting to Scotland at Shap Fell up in the mountains was actually snow. But now it could be a customs officer. So, I mean, you take people like, I mean, Tesco, Marks and Spencers, all these kind of people whose trucks have been going from, uh, you know, the, the, the Inverness... Uh, to um, Torquay, now they could, this famous soft border, soft and all as it may seem, it could have huge economic ramifications for business. Well, it will be the same issue as between Northern Ireland yeah, and, sure. the, and the Republic, George. Incidentally, what I heard was that when you said you were driving your trucks, you were actually playing rugby somewhere and you were just looking for excuses about turning up late. That's why I heard it was. But I think, you know, like you can do goods through technology these days. Interestingly enough, of course, the border, as you know, between Scotland and England is a geographically a much smaller border than the one between Northern Ireland and, yes. uh, and the Republic. It's really quite interesting. So, but, but the idea is that if, if you're out of Schengen, then there's no problem with free movement of people. Uh, and you should be able to find a way to track things technologically now, given that we're in the 21st century without sure. requiring the folk in uniforms uh, as customs officers. So, but if it's solved for, for Ireland, as I think it will be, 
it's solved for Scotland okay. as well. And after all, at the end of the day, you know, it's not our fault in Scotland, and it's not Northern Ireland's fault uh, that the, the folk in England have an act of collective madness and have decided to waltz away from Europe. Now, the, you're a, an MP, and so you're in, in Westminster on, on a regular basis. The question of the referendum, um, just how binding is it? Because Parliament actually still has to pass it, isn't that so? So I know Cameron's been over there saying we're out, but, but you do have to get Parliament to pass, don't you? You're very, I mean, constitutionally, you're, you're absolutely correct. I would say, however, that the mood among English MPs, even those who are very pro-Europe, is they've got no choice but to, to follow the wishes of their electorate. Obviously, we, are following the wishes of the Scottish electorate, uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be voting for Europe. But the vast bulk of English MPs are, are going to uh, follow the referendum result. I think we can be pretty uh, certain of that. And incidentally, the, the, probably the last opportunity for a bit of sanity. I mean, I think everybody really knew that Boris Johnston was actually an inner who pretended to be an outer <laughs> uh, for the purposes of uh, of the referendum and then would have swung back to being an inner once he was Prime Minister. Now that he's been knifed in the back by Lord Macbeth, Michael Gove, uh, the last person who was likely to try to trim the policy in some way has been removed from the scene of the Tory leadership stakes. So that today, and that's incidentally one explanation for the, the new collapse in the London stock market today, because the money men and women realise that as well. So I think you know, you're going to have to conclude that uh, England and Wales are on their way out. And really the question is, how does Scotland and, uh, and Ireland find a common cause to stay in? And... Um, I just like you mentioned. Obviously, you're a betting man when you knew what the bookmakers were doing. Um, if you were a betting man, where's this going to finish for Scotland, your country, your people? Well, I noticed that the, uh, this is the first time in my entire political life, George, that I've seen Scottish independence odds on with any bookmakers. Now, I'm not saying that means Scotland will definitely become independent in that timescale, but nonetheless, it's, a, it's a, a lot more convincing than any opinion poll these days. Okay, so you're going to do what Robert the Bruce couldn't do, is it? Well, uh, Robert, Robert the Bruce, uh, well, he actually achieved it, of course, but uh, it, it took him seven goes. <laughs> if you remember the, uh, the history, it took him seven goes after watching a spider in a cave <laughs> trying seven times to complete his web. I had a go and it looks like Miss Sturgeon might manage it on the second go. So that's not too, that's better than Robert the Bruce, is it not? Yeah. um, Just, you you were pretty critical, as indeed most people listening to the programme are of Boris Johnson. I mean, this does him enormous personal damage, though, doesn't it? I mean, he, he really is finished as a political force now, would you think? Well, that's correct, uh, and uh, you know he's been uh, he's been knifed in the uh, in the back by uh, Michael Gold, uh, uh, and uh, you know <laughs> I've known Michael a long time, and uh, I can't imagine why Boris Johnson decided to to put his faith and trust in him. I mean, <laughs> I'm calling him Lord Macbeth. You know, the Michael Gold is somebody who uh, dispatched his uh, best pal. That was the Prime Minister. Now he's dispatched. Uh, the the best uh, the, his best pal the prime minister's worst rival Boris Johnston I mean he's on a 
he's on a political assassination spree as uh, as Lord Macbeth. So uh, I'm afraid John, Boris Johnson's finished. I, I regret that in a way because uh, despite the fact I disagreed with Boris Johnson and just about everything, he he did uh, bring some sense of engagement in life and politics occasionally. Something that's entirely missing from uh, from Michael Gove. But does this does this mean finally, um, Alex Salmond? Uh, does this mean that um, the 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 Tory Party, whatever, but we don't know what's going to happen in Labour at the moment. But that the Tory Party's face is now irrevocably set against Europe. Yes, I think it does, <clears throat> and I think the. The last hope of trimming things slightly went with uh, Boris Johnson today. Indeed, I think one of the reasons why he was losing support is he wrote an article on Monday for his column in the Daily Telegraph which seemed to suggest, well, look, you know, <coughs> we can do a deal on the single marketplace and there may be free movement of people is not too bad an idea. And that, of course, uh, immediately set the uh, alarm bells ringing with uh, some of his pals that he'd been campaigning with in Brexit over the last few weeks. So so I think that, uh, but I think that was probably more his own viewpoint because, I mean, he's never been anti-European or anti-immigration until <clears throat> this campaign. So I suspect, however, that's uh, his. Uh, his you know, sometimes politicians twist and turn just once too often, and I think that's uh, that's what's happened to uh, to Boris Johnson. So as that uh, as that uh, campaign, as Boris Johnson uh, uh, fell by the wayside today, I, I think it uh, the this. It's now set, very much set, that the Tories are, are moving irrevocably out of Europe. And okay. therefore, the question is, can Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP keep Scotland in? All right. Thank you so much. Alex Salmon there, former First Minister of Scotland, still a member of Parliament, of course, for the constituency of Gordon, a member of the Scottish National Party. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie uh, Unless you're in Mars at the moment, you will have heard of the uh, uh, extraordinary chronicles of the accounting at the charity of Console. And uh, this is a HSE audit now, and it's revealed financial irregularities. We're not going to talk about it, you'll be delighted to hear, because we have done so already. But rather the effect on other charities, well-run, well-managed, um, with strict financial regulation. So Pat Clark is Chief Executive of Down Syndrome Ireland. He's in the studio. Pat, welcome to the programme. Good evening, George. Now, this isn't the first one in, in recent times. Um, how worrying is this for the sector? Obviously, the sector is uh, shocked and appalled by what is uh, uh, rolling out at the moment. Um, and they felt that we had gotten over all of this. We had recovered. There was a huge shock a number of years ago. Uh, it hasn't become effective or it hasn't been seen to have any effect at just at this point in time. But I anticipate that over the as the allegations are rolled out and further, I think there's even more allegations out today that I think it's going to have a, a serious effect on the, the sector. But I think the sector has to remain there. It has to recover. And it has to, because it provides vital services to so many people around the country that 
other that the government should be providing? Well, one of the things, like for instance, Billy last night sent me a text and he said, I'm never going to give to a charity again. Now, that's a kind of knee-jerk reaction I had to understand. But you'll get a rebound from that because people will look at Down syndrome and realise it's well-run or goal or, or very age action or whatever. But what the questions that... And understandably, people are asking, is how does it happen? Aren't there regulations? There are regulations, George, and, and unfortunately the trust has been broken before and it seems to be broken again with uh, with the general public who are out there, our benefactors and our donors, and that is regrettable and we are all angry within that. I'm angry as a citizen, I'm angry as a person who works in the sector. The regulations are there, the rules are there. This, there has been an appalling lack of... Uh, the auditors have an awful lot to answer for, I believe, in this situation. The... I cannot comprehend. This is so alien to my experience, George. With just, the auditors, with auditors, uh, with in like I'm involved with international charities as well as just Down Syndrome Ireland. I serve on the board of international and national and international charities. Okay. And the amount of regulation and uh, investigation that we are put through on a regular basis, ongoing basis, uh, internally and externally, is unbelievable. I just cannot. It is so alien to my experience, George, that uh, I cannot comprehend how this could have happened. All right, let's ask a few sort of particular yet general questions yeah. because I don't necessarily want to go to the specific. But for instance, this was a charity in which the board was was essentially the family, all right? Yeah. If you look at your board or any other charity's board, isn't there a rule about like who's the chairman or who you can have on your board or whatever? That what would, is that? Well, the, the rules would be dictated by individual charities, but in the main, all of the charities, all of the boards of charities, and it is uh, obligatory and it is statutory based, they would not be entitled to have a, to be a, a work within the organisation. I was a member of the board of Down Syndrome Ireland once I became the chief executive uh, a number of years you ago. You had to step down? I had to step down. Oh, I see. And that was it. And I, there was no way, and it's in the in the constitution that no uh, a board member may not be... But that's the constitution of Down Syndrome that Ireland. That would be the constitution of most charities. Oh, around, yes. And no, it, it is written, it is in the law that a, a trustee of a charity cannot be paid a salary. I see. It's but, as simple as that. Okay, well, so now we have black and white direction to charities. There's, the second thing is that if, a uh, phrase I used yesterday, the widows might, you know, Absolutely. if if some some person, uh, you know, because you, you you did their bagging for them in the supermarket or wherever it happened to be, or you called the house, they gave you money. But... Charities are also in receipt of money from the state. Now, doesn't the state have a responsibility to oversee the charities to whom it gives money? Absolutely. And this is another thing that would be alien to my experience. Now, admittedly, Down Syndrome Ireland gets very little funding from the state. About 8% okay. is all we get. But even what little we do get the strictures that are put on us in reporting and some of those reports have to be in within a matter of months of uh, 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 the end of a financial year. 
Uh, and we have had to very strong reporting structures we have to comply with everything and we have to make sure that all our governance and everything is in, in, in proper place and those reports are submitted to those funding bodies on a regular basis. But also at Down Syndrome Ireland indeed every charity once you're deemed to be a charity you get a great advantage and rightly so but nevertheless it is a great advantage you become tax free isn't that so? Our income becomes tax free so yes. you don't pay and you don't pay corporations profit. profits tax you don't pay income tax you don't pay dirt tax right. you do pay VAT and okay. the Down Syndrome Ireland would pay a substantial okay. amount of VAT and we would pay also all of the the general PAYE charges of your staff. for the staff, yes, yeah. okay. and that's and that goes without saying. But the, that advantage is there. But I think that's been granted over the years uh, in order to enable them to work in the sector and to provide the services that but, they do but provide. Nobody would argue with that. Absolutely I mean, uh, not. Nobody would argue with that. The problem is that when we then get the scandal like we are getting, there seem to be two things which confuse them, like. You and me, in our differing experiences, have dealt with auditors producing a set of annual accounts. And I've, I, I mean, you get asked a ton of questions, you, you know. Yeah. Now, what I don't get at all is a situation that in this, and I have to be specific in relation to console, what we have seen is we've seen credit cards, we've seen cash withdrawals from ATMs, we've seen all that sort of stuff. No auditor of my experience would ever sign off a set of accounts where that happened. So, so what we appear to have and I don't think it's enough to say, you know, oh, well, we had terrible difficulty speaking to your man. I mean, the, the ultimate sanction an auditor has, is, isn't it so, that he can actually either refuse to say, sign the accounts or at least he puts in a paragraph saying, I'm not happy. Isn't that right? That would be the minimum, George. Yeah. And I believe, I believe also that he would have had a duty of care that under certain rules and regulations, you know, under the Money Laundering Acts, etc., that he would have a duty to report uh, to certain authorities, namely the Gardaí and others. And I believe that there's been a, there appears to have been a serious failure by the auditor in this particular instance. Uh, but you see, if this, it's what we're talking about. It's the reason for it. I mean, when the great crash came, for instance, and you would have seen this in attempting to get done, it was hard to get because people were suffering. But what you did see was, for instance, and understandably, again, people said, well, I'll give to an Irish charity, I won't give to a foreign charity. And a lot of charities who did fantastic work abroad suffered uh, almost uh, unfairly in a way because for Irish people with little money, I said, I look after my own. I get that. But what you have here is you have the entire sector. Now people are saying, well, what's the next one? Indeed. I mean, and one cannot... Uh, guess where that is going to go to, George. But if you've got somebody who sets out to blatantly flout, flaunt the laws of this land and flaunt, flaunt all of the... Uh, uh, ignore all of the rules and regulations then they are going to do their damnedest to get around it and we have to rely on the charities regulator, we have to rely on the auditors and we will be calling on the government to speed up the investigative powers of the charity regulator to make sure that they have, uh, you know, and give them teeth. Yeah, now I got Billy Cap back to me 
Right. <laughs> and he said, I, I, on mature reflection, George, I'm going to give it to charity again, but I'll be very careful who, whom I give it to. And, and that's very sensible. Yeah. That's very sensible. Um, the the uh, Una says bringing you on is actually nonsense, okay? okay. And bear with me for yeah, a minute because yeah. she's saying you're a well-run charity, so yes. I shouldn't really be talking to you. But the point is we don't know the ones that aren't well-run. I mean, this is extraordinary because there is no doubt the experience of charities over my lifetime is people are motivi- motivated not by personal gain but a desire to do something. And wherever that is, that is the overwhelming motivation. And that's what makes this, I think, uh, so hurtful. And hurtful is the word, I think. Absolutely. No, I mean, as I said, I'm angry and disgusted with what has happened. But I think the great, the giving nature of the Irish public uh, will continue. And they will continue to give to well-run charities. And there's a lot more out there. We are just one of of many. Okay, but one of the things you have experience of is... A, being audited, but then we all have experience being audited, whether we are charity or otherwise. The second thing, though, we have experience of is there is, in Britain, I think it's called Charity Commission, I think. I'm not sure what it's called here. Um, But there is an overarching body responsible for charities, no? There is, but the charity regulator is the person, it would be the equivalent of the UK Charities Commission. And I have experience of the UK Charities Commission because one of the Down Syndrome International is a UK charity. And I'm on the board of that and treasurer of that. Uh, the charities regulator is has been set up here. Its, a, it's, it's second regulator is in place. Uh, but John do you Farley. think the British are ahead of us? In oh, this they are, of- yes. They were long year, years ahead of us. We are just coming up behind them very quickly. Now, the charities regulator has been given extra resources etc but the one thing that hasn't hasn't happened is the government have not uh, enabled that given that charity regulator the teeth and the power to investigate even if there's reports made to it they have to farm it out to somebody else the charities regulator in this country uh, would be calling upon the government to give it that teeth so say if there were a whistleblower and the whistleblower rang the charities regulator and said at consolers clearly a problem I can tell you you're saying charity the Charities regulator in Ireland can't turn up at the office the following morning. That's and my say, understanding, George. That's my understanding of what the situation is, and the government needs to. But you're given a license to uh, unscrupulous people, therefore. Well, that's but that is the nature of where we are with this, and this is why we we have called, and the, the whole charities sector has been calling for regulation. It to be put in place. It cannot. It obviously has proven that certain charities can't regulate themselves. So we've been calling for this and we've worked over the years to have the charities regulator put in place. We've got the Irish uh, Commission for Tax and Reform there. We've got Fundraising Ireland. We've got the Good Governance Code. All of those things are in place and the majority of of charities are signing up for all of those actions and all those governance uh, rules and regulations. But you will always find one or two. Yes, of course you will because of that. That's the sad thing about it 40 odd charities in the recent past have lost their tax exemption presumably because yeah. you know they weren't in order but it would it seems to me it behoves people now who are giving to charity um that they they look more closely at the charity and i mean there's so much on the internet it's not difficult who's on the board do you know do you know the kind of people who are on the board and so on 
I mean, all that information in a, from a good charity will be available on their website. Yeah. Our, our accounts are on our website. Our governance code is on our website. Uh, our statement of good governance is on our website. Uh, our accounts are published. They are lodged with the company's registration office. If you don't want to pay the money there, you can go onto our website and download them. All of that information is there. And all most, in fact, 95% of all good charities will have all that information on their website. All right. Thank you so much for joining me on what will be, I suspect, a very difficult number of weeks for the charities sector in Ireland. The fallout from the console, uh, what is every day, the more information we get, the more extraordinary it seems and the amounts of money are simply huge. My guest was the chief executive of Down Syndrome Ireland, Pat Clark. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Some really interesting statistics today. It's been revealed that only 7% of Irish parents believe their child is overweight even though the latest figures would suggest that 25% of kids are fat. So, I'm John by the retired Professor of Food and Health at University College Dublin, Mike Gibney. Uh, we'd still call you Professor Gibney. You worked hard to get it, so Remind we keep calling you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so tell me about these fat kids. Well, first of all, the statistic that uh, was announced today is, is along international norms. Uh, people do not recognise their children as being overweight and they don't recognise themselves as being overweight. This is part one of a really big challenge if we're going to tackle obesity. Uh, the second uh, issue is, which wasn't arises from that, wasn't part of the discussion today, is that people are ambivalent about their weight. Even if they feel they're overweight, um, uh, they're, they're ambivalent about it. Now, it, can I explain why I think, uh, how we can explain this? If, 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 if someone says, have you got a drink problem? You, everyone will say, no, I don't. Uh, but do you think that we have a drink problem in Ireland? Oh, we do. So it's a problem for the nation, like smoking is a problem for the nation, physical yeah. activity and obesity is a problem for the nation, but not for me personally. So everything to do with public health is someone else's uh, problem and, and not mine because I can do something about it. In contrast, something like Zika virus or BSE, people are terrified of it, even though it's not a threat to them at all. So... The, 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 the public has um, a distorted view of what constitutes a personal threat to their health. And until we have a better understanding of, of how the public is thinking, we are, are going to be fairly unsuccessful in delivering our message to them. All right. But isn't it true that fat parents tend to have fat children? Is that true? It is true. It's true that genetic is, uh, or obesity is inherited to an even greater extent than schizophrenia, depression, alcoholism, and so forth. So there's a very, very strong genetic component. But as one came... But, but sorry, therefore, and my guest is Mike Gibney, former uh, professor of uh, health and food at uh, UCD. Mike, um, therefore, like if parent is fat, parent is unlikely to say to the child, you're fat. I mean, isn't it? That makes sense almost. Yes, I mean, it, it, it becomes a norm, a family norm and, and something that they're comfortable with. That's, that's, that's the statistic we're looking at today, which is a denial that the problem exists 
um, and a denial that it, 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 it is actually a health problem for them. All right. But um, my, my, if, if I look at like my grandchildren um, and I have my first teenage grandchild today, I have a 13-year-old today. Happy birthday. Uh, now, they are taller and heavier than their parents, their grandparents were at that age. Isn't that right? Well, a lot of them will be taller because nutrition uh, yeah. drives height. But they'll be heavier also, surely. Well, not necessarily. Really? I mean, I've got a 16-year-old granddaughter and she's not. She's very tall and she's, she's, uh, she's slim. She's very physically active, though. Well, um, is, is physical activity more important than diet, therefore? I mean, should we be more concerned about the kids walking, cycling to school or... PE, more PE or whatever. Is that where we have to go? We should be worried about both, but we, we tend to forget about physical activity. I mean, the World Health Organization now ranks physical activity as causing more deaths than obesity. So physical inactivity itself is a, a, a shocking condition. And you can be overweight and, uh, active. and, and active and, and therefore be healthy. So the single most important thing, in my view, in this country is that we need to get uh, people active and, and, and that's one challenge but we cannot deny that we have a problem with the food supply we can't deny that people are are overeating and under under exercising together I, your, your latest book um, Human Obesity Explained and then the title is, is very interesting Ever Seen a Fat Fox presumably the, 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 the rationale being the foxes run a lot is it? Well, the foxes, um, the foxes only concern are, are only concerned about a simple thing, like having little foxes. Uh, they don't have the culture we have. They don't have the lifestyle we have. They don't have the social organisation or the brains that we have. And so one of the reasons why calling the book Ever Seen a Fat Fox was to emphasise that obesity is a uniquely human problem. And it requires us to look at what makes us different from the lion and the gazelle and the cow and the fox. What makes us different is our culture and our brains and our ability. And we have constructed wonderful cities. But those cities now have food uh, coming in from farms uh, seven days a week at cheap prices and available all the time. And we've built ourselves a problem and we'll have to be as smart as solving the problem as we were in creating it. But 25% of kids are obese. Now, yeah. the word obese is a bit tricky, though, because I'm, I'm sure that if we, if we put the Irish rugby team on weighing scales, uh, they'd okay. all come out as obese, wouldn't they? Well, can I give you a test? If I stood up, George, can I yeah. do that here now? Yes, do stand now, up. If, if, I'm, if my body mass index is between 20 and 25, I'm normal. Yeah. 25 to 30, I'm overweight, and above 30, I'm obese. obese. What do you make of this? You look pretty smart to me for well, a retired professor. Well, I'm overweight. <laughs> I'm actually obese. I'm clinically obese. Um, you're right, George. But, but you're, not, you're, you're not obese to the human eye. I mean, to no. me looking at and probably to yourself, you know. No, I, I, the, the problem is that the body mass index is a simple measure of obesity. It's not actually a measure of fatness. It's, it's, it's a, a rough indicator. The problem is that in delivering public health messages, organisations have to make it simple. And when you make it simple, the body mass index is a simple way of explaining it. But it has its faults. I mean, 
uh, most of your weight is associated with your trunk. So if you happen to have long legs, you're at an advantage or disadvantage. I can't remember. If you have short legs, you're definitely at a disadvantage. Um, So... Uh, we need to get smarter about how we, we classify but, but weight. If you look at America, for instance, right, where they really have a problem, they weigh kids in school. So there's a kind of a naming and shaming going on. What do you, a couple of questions. What do you think about that? And then the second one is that if you look at the states that are fatter than others, Louisiana is really high up there. And if you ever went out to a restaurant in Louisiana, in New Orleans, you'd realize yeah. why they're very fat. Well, so it, isn't it a question of, of the kind of diet, the national diet? Uh, but firstly, what about weighing kids in school? Well, uh, I, I mentioned this in the book that they did this in Britain for the last, I don't know, many years, five or six years. And the problem is that uh, parents were getting letters from uh, the school, a standard letter telling them that their children were overweight. When, when the, the, the researchers examined the attitudes of the parents, the parents ignored these yeah. messages because they said, well, all you're doing is looking at one narrow thing. But this is a happy child. This is a child that plays a bit of football. This is a child that enjoys life. And all you're doing is looking at one narrow thing. And I think that's one of the things we're going to have to get used to is that uh, we need to measure happiness as well as everything else and contentment. And that's why I say when we talk about uh, uh, people needing to lose weight, how do you tell someone whose mortgage is being withdrawn to lose weight? How do you tell someone who's lost their job? or being bereaved, or divorced. It falls down the list so far, it's a joke. Well, the other thing about this is, again, staying with children, right? You you, you, you come to your child, and your child is, is not very young now. We say the teenager-type child, 13, 14, 15, this kind of thing. And you say to this child, male or female, you know, you're fat, right? Or you're overweight or something. Aren't you now at risk of of putting that child in a different kind of spiral where now suddenly the child loses self-esteem, the child has now worried, I'm fat and therefore may lead to anorexia or bulimia or other kinds of issues, no? You're, you, you're absolutely right. It requires enormous sensitivity and wisdom. And um, unfortunately... We tend not to have that. And I think that's why parents are inclined not to say that their children are fat, because they don't want to stigmatise their children. Remember, fatness is the most stigmatised part of society today. You can be any race, any ethnic background you like, and we're not allowed to say a word about you. You can be gay or what you like, but you be fat, we'll call you a fat fool. And that's socially acceptable. But but what we do know, for instance, is like certain diseases were unknown. Isn't that right? For instance, in Kenya or whatever, because of their diet, they didn't they didn't get esophageal cancer. So I'm not sure because I'm not the expert. But but certain diseases were unknown or Japanese primarily ate fish, didn't eat meat. So certain uh, 
diseases were known. It's also fair to say, Tony Ward goes on a lot about this, there aren't any fat Chinese. I'm not sure he's right. No, he's not right there. (laughs) But uh, the point being that certain national diets, to go back to Louisiana, national diets contribute also. Without a doubt. uh, And uh, serving sizes, portion sizes, prices... Uh, and uh, outlets competing with one another, two for the price of one and all of that. All of this is contributing to obesity. There's no question about it, the abundance of food. And so parental control there is, is, is a huge issue. And I think we need to do an awful lot more talking to parents and focus group research to try and understand how best to tackle this issue. But yeah. standing up like a high priest and saying, do this, that's yeah, not going to work. Yeah, but when you and I were young, though, we ate because we were hungry. Uh, you know, whereas now uh, uh, today's birthday party, I don't know where he's going. I guess he's going to a movie, you know. But there's also a possibility he's going to McDonald's or he's, you know, that like a hamburger or something else is also part of the birthday experience. Yeah, but people seem to forget. I mean, you grew up with uh, uh, gobstoppers. You grew up with sherbet bags and you grew up with candy cigarettes and candy pipes, those black little candy yeah, pipes remember, and things. Yeah. I remember all those things and Cleves Toffee and all that. It's only just changed. You know, it's it, they're all gone and they've been replaced by another uh, source of, of calories. Yeah, the but we all is, walked or cycled to school. We did. That, that was one big difference. We, we all exercised far more, walked to school and, and walked to the shops and did all of that sort of thing and we had chores to do at home as well. Uh, that doesn't happen. And we didn't sit in front of computers, although we did a lot more reading, which is sitting down. But uh, certainly uh, physical activity has changed, but diet has changed. And it is, they're both, they're both integrate parts, you know, okay. integrately involved in obesity. All right. Thank you for joining me. The retired professor of food and health at UCD, Mike Gibney. The book, Ever Seen a Fat Fox, a paperback published by University College Dublin Press. Professor Gibney, thank you for joining me. Lots more to come on The Right Hook.